So you guys can sing whether there's light or no light. That was encouraging. You sounded great even in the dark. I was not too worried about my part. I preach off an iPad, so that was not affected by the loss of electricity there. If need be, I can just shout where you can hear me. Before we begin our Bible study in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 this morning, I want to talk for a moment about racism. Always a hot topic in our world. In essence, more than one sin makes up the blight of what we call racism. Scripture would refer to it with such terms as hatred, the sin of hatred. It's the sin of favoritism, as James writes about. It includes the sin of pride because one person or group of people is believing they are better than another person or another group. Racism, though, is actually an an unfortunate label since we are all members of one race. There isn't one race, really, the human race. What we're referring to is the issue of prejudice against people who are different than we are. In some way, the prejudice most commonly exists due to differences in ethnicity, but it can be based on other factors as well, such as social class and financial considerations or educational considerations, certainly prejudice because of various cultural differences. And the sad reality is that one ethnic group who experiences this prejudice or racism, as we tend to call it, can be just as guilty about being prejudiced or hateful in reverse. Well, biblically, the bottom line is that it is sin. So we as Christians must take a strong stand against prejudice, against all forms of hatred and racism. The world would say it's wrong. The problem is we don't agree with the solutions that the world comes up with. The only true answer for hatred and prejudice and pride and racism is ultimately the gospel because it is only in Christ that we can experience true unity. It is only in Christ that the walls of prejudice can be broken down. Galatians 3.28 puts it this way very clearly. Paul writes, there is neither Jew nor Greek There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That is the answer. Of course, the world does not want to hear that answer. So it comes up with all sorts of strategies to try to get rid of racism, strategies that are all useless. The fact is, we won't actually ever erase prejudice and hatred in our world, regardless of the attempts to do so. In fact, we won't eliminate any particular sin in our world because sinners keep being born into our world. The world consists of sinners. It is only in the eternal state in heaven that there will be no more sin of any kind. Now, don't misinterpret me. That doesn't mean that we shouldn't oppose every kind of sin, including racism, while we are here. 
But that doesn't mean we will eradicate it. But on this topic of so-called racism, let me press a little further by asking you a question. What is likely the oldest expression of prejudice? I'll tell you the answer. It's anti-Semitism. Anti-Semitism. That is the word that we hear from time to time. It's the word that sums up prejudice toward or even hatred of Jewish people. That hatred goes back thousands of years. I was doing some reading on that this week just to get a fresh perspective on its presence in our world today. This is a quote from an author Uh, In a book just a few decades ago, not that long ago, he wrote this, anti-Semitism is the longest and deepest hatred in human history. He went on to ask this, what other hatred has endured some 23 centuries and survived a genocide of six million of its victims only to find itself still intact? If you do look at history and the history of the Jewish people, you will find that they have suffered a lot along the way. They've been expelled from many different countries, and for the most part, it was simply because they were Jews. Yes, the time, at times, the situation was aggravated because they would refuse to convert to the dominant religion somewhere, whatever it was. It was aggravated because they were different. They were distinct due to their religious practices and customs. So that just led to them being demonized, literally turned into scapegoats at times for whatever calamity or tragedy that was going on at the time in the world. The attitude many times in many countries was, well, blame it on the Jews. It's their fault somehow. You'll remember, many of you will, that the nation of Israel, at least you studied it, was established again in 1948. At that time, again, many Jews had to flee various countries, especially Muslim countries. They were no longer welcome in many places. If they risked staying, they could lose their livelihoods or even their lives. There are extreme anti-Semites that take it further. Extreme anti-Semites say the reason Jews have suffered The reason they have been expelled from countries is because Jewish people are evil. All kinds of ugly things are said about the Jews like this. The Jews are parasites, it is said. Or as Louis Farrakhan put it, termites. They say Jews are guilty of the most atrocious sins imaginable. So it is true that today this long and deep hatred shows no signs of abating. One very current writer and commentator recently said this about the presence of anti-Semitism now, today. He wrote, this is especially true online, where the worst aspects of humanity get free expression. Isn't that the reality? The worst aspects of humanity get free expression where conspiracy theories of the ugliest kind abound. That's true in social media. And where the most uncredentialed, unqualified person can still gain a following. This is fertile ground for anti-Semitism, he writes. He went on in his article to give some examples of current comments online that you can find. Here's several. 
One, the Jews were expelled from various countries because they were pedophiles. That was the reason. And pedophilia is actually sanctioned in their religious literature. The Jews were expelled because they were greedy and corrupt. The Jews were expelled because they controlled the banks and were getting rich off of high interest rates, hurting their innocent, hardworking neighbors. The Jews were expelled because they cursed Christians in prayers three times a day. And according to the anti-Semites, Israel is a country that is built on genocide and that it continues to practice genocide today. All that can be found in comments online. As can this perspective about our own government. You can find these comments. The fundamental problem with American politics today is that the Jews control both political parties. And we're all aware that there are those who still claim that the Holocaust never happened. Hard to believe. U.S. colleges and universities have seen a rapid rise in anti-Jewish activity. In April, uh, a year ago, reports had spiked by 41% in 2022 compared to the previous year. And all this anti-Semitism can come from extremist cults at one extreme, like black Hebrew Israelites, there's that group, but also from largely white Christian, so-called Christian circles influenced by anti-Semites. In other words, the lies are coming from all sides and from every angle. We do understand that the Jews throughout their history have fallen under God's divine judgment at different times due to their own rebellion against God. Absolutely true. They've been even guilty of their own hatred of other people. So maybe we could just say that really, I guess they're like everyone else. A mixed group of people that are known by some good things, bad things. They're like everyone else in that they are people who fall short of God's glory and need salvation, need redemption. My point this morning certainly is that anti-Semitism is sin, but to press press even further, what about Christians? Is it possible for professing Christians to be anti-Semitic? And the answer on one hand is yes, because in a moment of time, a Christian can be guilty of basically any sin. So I should ask that question differently, not Is it possible for professing Christians to be anti-Semitic? I should ask it this way. Should a Christian be anti-Semitic? And the answer is a resounding no. Christians should not be known for any form of prejudice or hatred. And you'd think that of all the forms of prejudice and racism that can exist, this one would be something that Christians would be very vocal against. I mean, after all, Our Savior, the Lord Jesus, was Jewish. And the Bible was mostly written by Jewish people. And yet, some Christians are guilty of this sin, just as they are guilty of some other forms of prejudice and hatred, even though Scripture is clear that all forms of it is sin. Proverbs 10, 18, He who conceals hatred has lying lips. Ephesians 4.31, let all bitterness and wrath and anger be put away from you along with all malice. 
But here's what's even more astounding. There are some who try to make the case that the Apostle Paul was anti-Semitic. And that is shocking since he was a Jew himself. Nevertheless, some do try to make the case Paul was anti-Semitic, and one of the passages they use to make that case is the passage we are studying this morning. See, I got to my sermon eventually. 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 15 and 16. Let me bring you up to date. A couple of weeks ago, we started this section that begins at, chapter, at verse 13 looking at two contrasting responses that will be the experience of genuine pastors and genuine spiritual leaders and ministers. First of all, we noted, number one, a pastor's gratitude. In other words, we found the Apostle Paul, starting at verse 13, describing his gratitude for the Thessalonians and more particularly uh, describing two realities that made him so grateful as a minister. And I pointed out to you that these are realities that every true pastor is grateful for. Number one, the commitment to truth. And number two, the testimony of endurance. This encourages and thrills a pastor's heart, just like it did Paul. He saw this amongst the Thessalonians. They're embracing of and commitment to the truth. And he saw the testimony of their endurance when they suffered because of what they believed about the truth. A pastor's gratitude. Today, we find the contrasting response that ministers also experience. Number one, a pastor's gratitude. Today, number two, a pastor's grief. A pastor's grief. One of the greatest of griefs for a minister is seeing people reject the truth. Rejection of the truth. And that is what the Apostle Paul discusses now in verse 15 and 16. Now, before we delve into those, we do need to read verse 14 again. So look back at that. Verse 14, For you, brethren, became imitators of the churches of God in Christ Jesus that are in Judea. For you also endured the same sufferings at the hands of your own countrymen. That's where we got that second point, the testimony of their endurance. He saw that in them. He said they suffered at the hands of their own countrymen. Then this phrase, even as they did from the Jews. So there at the end of verse 14, Paul briefly mentions Jews as being one of the sources of opposition to the truth, one of the sources of opposition that he and Timothy and Silas, the missionary team that went to Thessalonica, that they experienced opposition from, that the Thessalonians who'd come to Christ experience opposition from the Jews, which means that in just a few weeks of preaching the gospel there in that city, many Thessalonians readily believed, whereas after centuries of having the revelation from God, the Jews stubbornly refused to accept the truth. And as a result, they opposed the proclamation of the truth, and those that were proclaiming it, like Paul. And this was something Paul experienced basically everywhere he went. Opposition from the Jews. I'll read you some more. Acts 9, verse 23. When many days had elapsed, the Jews plotted together to do away with him. Acts 9, 29. And he was talking and arguing with the Hellenistic Jews 
but they were attempting to put him to death. Acts 14, verse 19. But Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. So again, Paul was accustomed to that, and that Jewish opposition did abound when he and the team went to Thessalonica, that it resulted in his exit. In Acts 17, you find the historical account of their time in Thessalonica, Acts 17, verse 5, but the Jews became zealous, formed a mob, and set the city in an uproar because of what the pastors were preaching. Paul had to flee the city, ended up in Corinth, wrote this letter from Corinth. And even as he wrote this letter in Corinth, from Corinth, a united attack had been mounted against him by Jews there. Acts 18, verse 12, the Jews with one accord rose up against Paul and brought him before the judgment seat. As we know, he wrote a second letter, two letters to the Corinthians that we have in the canon. He wrote more, about four letters to them, but two of them are in our canon of Scripture. What we know of 2 Corinthians, he said this, 2 Corinthians eleven twenty four. five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. So back to our text, it appears that that little brief comment about the Jews at the end of verse 14 gave Paul this occasion to digress slightly and deliver a stern criticism of them. But this kind of stern and firm vocabulary related to the Jews is not unique in Paul's writings. It's not just here. For example, listen to several places in Romans. In the book of Romans, Paul points out that the Jews were in rebellion against God and that really only a remnant of them were saved. Romans 9 verse 27 quotes the Old Testament, the prophet Isaiah, who said the same thing. Though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. Not all of those In the covenant that God made with Israel, not all the Israelites were truly converted. They were part of a national covenant, but only a remnant was actually saved. And that's a quote from an Old Testament book, so this has always been true. In contrast, the majority were hardened. Romans 11, verse 7. Those who were chosen, meaning for acceptance by God. Those who were chosen obtained it, and the rest were hardened. And it was that reality that gave rise to the inclusion of the Gentiles then being part of the people of God, the gospel going out to the rest of the nations. Romans 11, verse 11. By their transgression, the Jews, salvation has come to the Gentiles. Listen to Acts 13, verses 45 and 46. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and were blaspheming. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, to the Jews. Since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. But Paul also knew that God had not completely and ultimately rejected Israel. As I noted, a remnant was still being saved in his day, including him. Romans 11, verse 1 and 5. 
God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. Verse 5, in the same way then, there has also come to be at the present time a remnant according to God's gracious choice. And it was that fact that gave the Apostle Paul the ability to hold out some hope that more of his fellow Jews, his fellow countrymen, could be saved. My point is, Paul was far from being anti-Jewish. He loved his own people. He longed for their salvation. Romans 9 verse 3, I wish that I myself could be accursed, separated from Christ for the sake of my brethren, my kinsmen according to the flesh. Romans 10 verse 1, brethren, my heart's desire and my prayer to God is for them, the Jews. It's for their salvation. And of course, we have this great proclamation about the power of the gospel Familiar words to us in Romans 1, verse 16. Paul writes, I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first, that was God's plan. The truth to go out to that nation first, but also to the Greek, meaning the Gentiles, non-Jews. In that biblical terminology, everybody is either Jewish or non-Jewish. So back to our study. The negative tone in this passage that we'll see is not due to racial hatred. A a hatred of some ethnic group. It's not despising a particular ethnicity or a particular culture. Instead, the strong language is Paul confronting rejection of the truth about Jesus. That was the issue. It was not their ethnicity. It was a heart issue. Not hatred of a people, but his love for the gospel and great grief in his heart over any who rejected it. Just remember, he felt this way about Gentiles as well. We can find in Scripture his stern critique of the Gentiles as well who reject the truth. Just read Romans 1, starting at verse 18 especially. Here's verse 18, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth and unrighteousness. That includes Gentiles. Verse 21 of Romans 1, even though they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks, but they became futile in their speculations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Paul was in grief over anyone and everyone who would reject Jesus And he was truthful and upfront about the seriousness of that sin of rejecting Christ, no matter who you are. So this section we're studying today does not justify any form of anti-Semitism among Christians. This is just the record of Paul's burdened grief and his confrontation of his fellow Jews, a confrontation they deserved because of their rejection of the truth. So let's look at this, this pastor's grief and their rejection of the truth. First, we're going to look at proofs of that rejection. He lists a couple of them here. And the most serious one, the one that that is the most grievous, is the one mentioned first, verse 15. Number one, murder. There's one evidence, one proof of their rejection of the truth, murder. 
They were guilty of it. Verse 15 says they killed the Lord Jesus. Now, we know that the crucifixion of Christ was due to the action of both Jews and Gentiles, both involved in the murder of Jesus. Acts 4.27 tells us this, truly in this city there were gathered together against Jesus both Herod and Pontius Pilate along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. Both were involved, but here Paul lays the guilt primarily on Israel because it was the Jewish religious leaders who persuaded the Roman authorities to crucify Jesus. Mark 14 verse 1, the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and kill him, but they did not have the power of capital punishment. They needed the Romans for that. And so they got the Romans on board. Jesus was crucified, the most grievous crime in human history they committed. In fact, the serious nature of it is seen in how Paul even refers to Christ here. In the Greek, the title, the Lord, and his name, Jesus, are separated by the verb. We don't see it in English. But the Greek would more literally be translated something like this. They killed. It's the Lord they killed. That's how it's worded. The Lord they killed. Even Jesus. That is Jesus. So by listing the Lord first, separate from his human name, they're emphasizing the exalted nature of the one they killed. He's the Lord, the Lord of glory, the Lord of the universe. That's against whom this heinous crime was committed. And yet he was also Jesus, fully man. In fact, Jesus, one of their own fellow Jews. So opposing and hating the very Messiah who was promised to them, the Messiah, the one that came, the one who, who was promised to come to earth and did as the very apex of God's purposes for all mankind, they killed him. And that opposition, it represented opposition to God's purposes, opposition to God's purposes on their part has had a long history amongst them. Even before the murder of Jesus, it was seen in their murder of the various human messengers that, messengers that brought them the truth. So Paul digresses back in time and says in verse 15, and the prophets also. They murdered the prophets. In both the Old and New Testament, the rejection and martyrdom of the prophets is presented as this evidence of the, of the rebellion of God's people against God's plans and God's purposes. You find it in both Testaments, 1 Kings 19 verse 10. The sons of Israel have killed your prophets with the sword. Matthew 23, 37 in the New Testament. Jerusalem kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. There's one proof of their settled rejection of the truth, murder. And here's the second one, persecution. Paul experienced that, so he adds in verse 15, and drove us out. Just so you know, that verb drove out can also be translated persecuted. That's what Paul and his fellow ministers of the gospel experience in city after city, persecution, being driven out of town. Here's one example, Acts 13, verse 50. 50. The Jews instigated a persecution against Paul and Barnabas and drove them out of their district. 
The point is the Jews have historically been known for this. Consistent opposition to God's purposes and God's ways, though they think of themselves totally differently. Proofs of rejection. Now we see the results of the rejection. And there are three of them. Here's one result of that rejection. Number one, they have grieved God. They have grieved God, verse 15. He says it in a different way, though. He says it sort of with a positive spin or or negative spin. They are not pleasing God. I mean, that's why we were created. To please God is something you find in both the Old Testament and the New Testament. In the Old Testament, it's rooted there. 1 Kings 3.10, when Solomon made his request of the Lord, it said it was pleasing in the sight of the Lord that he made that request. Psalm 69, verse 30 and 31, I will praise the name of God with song and magnify him with thanksgiving, verse 31, and it will please the Lord. It pleases the Lord to praise him and to thank him. It's frequently found as a concept in Paul's writings. That's how we are to live our lives. He says in Colossians 1, verse 10, Walk in a manner, live your life in a manner worthy of the Lord. Here's what that means. To please Him in all respects. There's our goal. 1 John 3.22 We keep His commandments and we do the things that are pleasing in His sight. So rebellion against God's plans and God's purposes is the opposite of that. It does not please God. It grieves God. And this is what the majority of the Jews have been an illustration of, sadly. So when Paul says it that way, they have not pleased God, that's an understatement. The reality is they've been very militantly opposed to God's ways. Yes, we think of them and we can say, but there's this This zeal for God, don't we see that? And Paul would say, yes, there's a zeal for God. But you know what else he said about that zeal? Romans 10 verse 2, I testify testify about them, the, the Jews, that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. It's not a right zeal. So again, the point is that by opposing God's Messiah so strenuously, which means they opposed God's purposes, they actually became and have become God's adversaries. They have grieved God. That's one result. Number two, they have failed mankind. They have failed man, mankind. Why? Well, the nation of Israel was supposed to have been not only God's chosen people to bring glory to Him, but to have been an instrument in His hands for bringing the truth to the nations of the world, a vehicle. Isaiah 49, verse 6, God says to them, I will also make you a light of the nations so that my salvation may reach to the end of the earth. But they did not fulfill that purpose. So Paul writes in verse 15 of our text, and they were hostile to all men. Yes, there was some hatred on their part toward people, but this hostility here is a particular hostility. He's referring to their effort to keep the truth of the gospel from being proclaimed to the Gentiles, which is what verse 16 says directly. 
hostile to all men, verse 16, hindering us, there's the hostility, hindering us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they might be saved. So yes, they did not like the gospel of being presented to fellow Jews either. They did hate that. The idea that preaching to the Jews, the preaching to the Jews that Jesus was the long-awaited Messiah, they hated that. Acts 4, verse 17 and 18. But so that it will not spread any further among the people, this is the Jews talking amongst themselves, the leaders, let us warn them to speak no longer to any man in this name, the name of Jesus. Verse 18, and they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. Do not keep telling Our fellow Jews that Jesus is the long-awaited Messiah. Yeah, they hated that. But what they hated even more was Paul's mission to the Gentiles because it implied something. It implied God's forsaking of Israel, at least temporarily. Acts 13, 46 again. Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and said, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. And that became his missionary journeys. Romans 11, verse 11. By their transgression, the Jews' transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles, all the nations of the world. That's what the Jews hated even more. And so the missionaries telling Gentiles that they could be people of God, that's what the Jews sought most to eliminate. This was and has been clear opposition to God's purposes, God's mission. And as I read, just read from Isaiah 49, it was always God's plan for the good news about Christ to be proclaimed throughout the world. So they grieved God, they failed mankind. Paul lists a final result of their obstinance. Number three, they have condemned themselves. They've condemned themselves. Verse 16 continues, with the result that they always fill up the measure of their sins. That's the way this translation puts it, that fill up the measure. That's a figure that points to this idea that there is a well-defined set limit of sin that God has set. And when that divinely set point is reached, divine judgment is inevitable. That's a theme that appears over and over in Scripture, the sins of a people coming up to the complete measure is how the Bible presents it, and then divine judgment poured out. There's an Old Testament example. The nations outside Israel, they were rebellious and idolatrous nations. God even used them at times to punish Israel. One of those, the Amorites, they were a rebellious people. But God kept permitting them to continue to live in Canaan. Four generations. Genesis 15, verse 16. Then in the fourth generation, they will return here. For the iniquity of the Amorite is not yet complete. Again, there's that idea. There's a set limit to their rebellion. And once it's reached, judgment will come and they'll be exiled. We find this perspective, this concept in the teaching of Jesus, Matthew 23, verse 31 and 32. He says to the Jews, you're the sons of those who murdered the prophets. Verse 32, fill up then the measure of the guilt of your fathers. 
Go ahead and add to that measure by your own sins. You're just filling it up to the divinely set limit. So back to our verse, the announcement is that their sins had come to that divinely set limit to full measure. And therefore, the inevitable consequence is this, verse 16, but wrath has come upon them to the utmost. Now, in the text, the Greek text, it doesn't say wrath of God, but it is obvious that is the wrath that's being talked about here. It is the wrath of God. But it is a future wrath. It's the future wrath for which the whole world is destined just before Messiah's earthly kingdom. During the tribulation period, especially the second three and a half years of it, right before the Lord's return, those dwelling on the earth will experience all the judgments outlined in Revelation that will be poured out on the earth. It's, it's completely put in a future way there in that book. All unbelievers present at that time, including unbelieving Jews, will experience this judgment from God. By God's grace, there's going to be a large number of Jews to be converted as well. But judgment's going to be poured out. But yet you look at the verse, and so it stimulates the questions. This verse says the judgment has come. It's a particular use of the aorist tense in Greek that pictures something as having already arrived in a potential sense. In other words, it has arrived in the sense that the limit has been met, the wrath has arrived and is ready and waiting, waiting to be poured out. And there's nothing else needed to transpire, only waiting for the divinely designated time. So the arrival of wrath is a past arrival in that sense, but only in a potential sense. You say, well, hasn't Israel experienced a lot of manifestations of God's anger and judgment throughout the centuries of their history? Yes, so have the Gentiles. But all those occurrences have just been a taste. Some are more bitter taste than others, but all have just been a foreshadowing of what is still to come in the future. And even the grammar supports this. Sometimes the word the is in the text and sometimes it's not in the Greek text. Here it is in the Greek text. It is not just wrath is coming or wrath has come, but it is the wrath. It's a way of designating something very particular. So God's judgment has arrived upon the threshold of fulfillment, not in the actual experience of it. But all prerequisites for unleashing this future torrent have been met. And therefore, in the future, there is a time of great trouble awaiting Israel, just as it does the rest of the world. And as soon as God-appointed time comes, the Jews, with the rest of the non-Christian world, will be plunged into this awful future judgment. And it will happen fully. That's what the little phrase, to the utmost, means. It doesn't mean finally or something else. It means fully. The determination cannot be reversed. What a sobering reality that a nation or an individual can reach a point in opposition to God where return is impossible and they'll not want to return. 
Once again, let me just say, Paul and his companions were not guilty of anti-Semitism. With all the strong wording that we find in this passage, they simply stood in the tradition of the prophets, in the tradition of Jesus, by announcing judgment on anyone who firmly opposes the purposes of God. So let's remember that about God. He is the judge of all humanity, both of the Jews and of the Gentiles. But also remember this, that one who is the judge is also the Savior. The one who extends forgiveness to both Jews and Gentiles. Either can be saved if either repents of sin and trusts in Christ. Which ought to be a reminder then of our obligation in all this. Our obligation is to keep proclaiming the truth of the gospel. Like a net that's thrown out. We keep throwing out the net. The gospel net. It's a message that is particular though. It's not a message to try to help people live a better life here. We're not therapists. We're not proclaiming some sort of therapeutic answer for them and so that they can find out some sort of inner harmony and well-being. We're proclaiming a very particular message, but it's the message that, according to Scripture, is the power of God for saving people from their sin. Romans 10, 9 and 12. Summarize it. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Verse 12, for there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, abounding in riches for all who will call on him. We grieve over the state of the nation of Israel Not because we have some ethnic hatred in our hearts, surely not. They're a mission field, like every other people group. We grieve over their rejection of the truth. May we be faithful to this gospel mission, even to proclaim it to Jews that we know. Let's pray. Father, thank you for thrilling our hearts once again with the reality of our own salvation, that you've taken us from darkness into the light. We were born rebels, and you converted us from rebelling against you and your plans and your purposes to loving you and your plans and your purposes, and the Lord Jesus whom you sent. Lord, I pray that that would be something we never trivialize and get over, but we live our lives each day in light of the joy of it. Strengthen us for that. Help us with that. Help us to be faithful to proclaim gospel truth no matter who it is. Everyone's the same in that sense. They're rebelling against God. And they need to be saved. Help us to have that kind of grief in our hearts over those who reject the truth. We live in a world, we look around us, and it's a world that is plunging deeper and deeper into darkness and rejection of truth, rejection of even sanity. May we not be ever self-righteous as we see that, but in humility and with a broken heart. Pray for those we know who are destined for judgment. 
based on what they're saying and believing and doing. May we have opportunities to speak the truth to them. I pray for anyone here who's never come to that place themselves of realizing their biggest problem is their sin, their self-focus and their love of self and wanting to go their own way. I pray you would bring them to that place of humility where they can repent of that and put their trust in Christ to follow him as their Lord. In his name we pray, amen.